morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, chapter 14, verse 26 through 27. It's printed in your bulletins if you'd like to read along. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de los Proverbios, capítulo 29, versículo 25, y capítulo 14, versículos 26 al 27. Temer a los hombres resulta una trampa, pero el que confía en el Señor sale bien librado. El temor del Señor es un baluarte seguro que sirve de refugio a los hijos. El temor del Señor es fuente de vida y aleja al hombre de las redes de la muerte. Join with me in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would make your word come alive. We know you can do that in our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you would draw each of our attention to um, precisely what we need to hear. Um, especially that you would give us life for your son Jesus, uh, who is the fountain of life. Um, bless this time. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in the middle of a series uh, that we've been calling Defensible Sins or Excusable Sins and just looking at different ways in which we are all prone to moral failure and yet in ways that might not always be recognized or embraced, uh, not not always seen for what they are, namely as sin, uh, because they're all too easy to overlook or maybe push so far down the ladder or hierarchy of what we believe to be sins that are worth regarding, or just ways in which we can justify ourselves and excuse ourselves so easily, so explainable, the way we live our lives, isn't it? Last week, we looked at self-righteousness. The week before that, we looked at the issue of grumbling. And so today, for our third so-called defensible sin... Returning to the book of Proverbs. I don't know how much time you've spent in this book. The book of Proverbs really is just a collection of short statements about the way life is from the perspective of the Bible. How to live wisely. It gets really into the nitty-gritty details of life. I would recommend that you read it. It really touches down into daily life. Things like work and wealth and Words, how you talk to people, relationships, sexuality and time and decision making and all these different ways in which God gives us guidance and specific direction how we can love God and love neighbor again in the nitty gritty details of human life. Not all of these, but many of them are written by Solomon, King Solomon of Israel, the son of David. 
And these proverbs are usually found in little couplets, two rhythmic lines of poetry, where the first one proposes some view of reality, and the second line comes in and echoes or responds to the first line. We see that in some of the proverbs that we have here today in front of us. Three sets of two couplets, or three sets of couplets that are linked by common words and common themes, fear, snare, confidence, uh, refuge, these sorts of words. We have one from Proverbs 29 and two from Proverbs 14. Let me read them again as we take a look at them. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. And what we are looking at today for our third grand excusable sin is what verse 25 in the Bible as a whole call the fear of man. Now what is that? The fear of man. To clarify, the phrase fear of man doesn't just refer to feelings of terror or panic or horror. Actually, as it's used in this passage, fear is a much broader word. It carries the sense of holding someone in awe. It carries the sense of treating people as big Treating people as authoritative in your life, whether they ought to function in that capacity or not. Treating people as if they were godlike, in fact. In other words, the fear of man is worshiping other people in a way where you eventually allow yourself to be controlled by what those other people think of you. Or controlled by how those other people respond to you. Or controlled by even maybe a look that another person gives to you. Whereby we start to say to the people around us, whether they're close to us or they're strangers, but out of the fear of man in our hearts, we start to say, I need you to love me. Or maybe we don't verbalize it, but our actions and the desires of our hearts start to echo it. I need you to make me feel significant. I need you to make me feel accepted and approved. I hold you in awe. I worship you. And there are a number of examples in the Bible that are just so helpful in this regard. Tragically helpful. Showing us our own hearts and our lives. The story of King Saul. The very first king of Israel. Wonderfully tragic, handsome, skilled, popular Saul. Who, though he was invited by God to take the promised land as an inheritance for all God's people, gave into the pressures of the people who wanted him to be a king that measured up to the kings of the nations of the world around them. They say, King Saul, you go and help us to compete against these other nations Compete with their wealth and their power and their popularity. And so before you know it, he starts engaging in a little bit of empire building. Not the way that God intended him to do. When he was finally confronted by the prophet, he says in 1 Samuel 15, I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. 
the fear of man. Or in Jesus' ministry, we hear stories about different people that were very intrigued by what Jesus was saying and who they began to see him to be. And yet a number of them were Jewish uh, by descent, members of different synagogues, and were told that some of them did start to believe in Jesus. However, they were afraid of the religious leaders, what they might think of them and what they might do to them. And even became afraid of being kicked out of their synagogues and their religious traditions. And in John 12, we're told they did this because why? They loved praise from men more than they loved praise from God. The fear of man. One of the story of Jesus' crucifixion, Pontius Pilate, the governor over the region in which Jesus uh, was being held uh, under trial. Mark 14 records the story. Where again and again it's emphasized that Pilate, who's a Roman official, says, I find no wrong that this man has done. No legal basis for his execution. And yet the crowd who had by this time become a mob was yelling again and again, crucify this Jesus. Crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate again and again said, I have found no wrong that he has committed. And yet, we're told in Mark 14... Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Keep them happy. Keep them off his back. Keep popular with them. He delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Or in the book of Galatians, the story of the Apostle Peter. The great Apostle Peter. Who had come to be aware that God's intention was to extend his good news of grace Not just amongst the Jewish believers, but then far beyond their borders, their ethnic borders, amongst Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So even against the cultural grain of his own people, Peter starts to have meals and relationships with people of non-Jewish descent, Gentiles. And yet one day when a host of other teachers who strongly believed that Jewish Christianity was the only kind of Christianity, Captive by their cultural norms and therefore judging all those who said you don't need to be Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus. Peter, afraid of them, we're told, began to draw back and separate himself from the new friends that he had been sharing meals with. He was afraid of them. It was the fear of man that made him compromise everything that he believed. Story after story after story in the Bible and friends, story after story after story in our lives as well. The presence of the fear of man. The way in which maybe you and I feel like we're always on stage having to perform for the eyes of another person. Needing their approval. Maybe afraid of looking stupid, maybe always constantly being afraid of making mistakes. It can be a form of the fear of man. Or maybe in the way in which we kind of chuckle or even laugh at different jokes that we know are offensive, or we know are inappropriate, but just because we want to make sure we're liked by that group of colleagues or friends that we're with. We don't want them to think we're a little weird or we're not funny. You go ahead and laugh along with them. Or maybe even the ability to, inability to say no. Right? The way in which maybe you live a boundaryless life. And maybe what's primarily driving that, always saying yes to everything, being overcommitted perhaps, and maybe overworking, because you don't want to disappoint people. You don't want them to think lowly of you, but you don't want them to think that you're not committed to what it is you're committed to. 
You don't want them to think you're a slacker or a failure or that you're not in it. Whatever it might be, another sign of the fear of man. Working for your boss's approval, being a different person behind closed doors than you are in public before other people. When there's a large gap between who you are out there and who you are in here. Why? Because you're shifting gears when you're around other people. You're fearing man. You're looking for their approval, their pat on your back, their okay, their endorsement of who you are. Do you have that sort of chameleon personality, perhaps? Or even the way that we struggle with body image. Man, whether if it's issues of weight or if it's an issue of a receding hairline, whatever it might be for us, how often that kind of self-consciousness or fear over our physical features really are because of the power we give to other people to define what is glorious and significant about who we are. The fear of man at work. Sometimes there are what you might call strong forms of the fear of man. Like they don't really look like insecurity or iffiness of heart because it's uber confidence. You know, maybe it's talking or speaking or acting with grand bravado all the time. But maybe really what's underneath that is just needing to make sure that you're controlling people's opinions of you all the time. Putting out a strong and assertive presentation of you as capable. You as having answers. You as indefatigable. Did I say that word right? Unflappable. Sometimes it looks strong, but deep inside, it's what the Bible calls the fear of man. Or even people that are ultra-independent. You might be saying, like, I don't fear nobody. I don't even like people. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't hang around anybody. I live myself and I just hang around. I don't de- that too, friends, can be the fear of man. Because maybe you've put up so many walls and barriers precisely because you so badly, deeply need them to like you. And it's better just not to even be with people that aren't going to like you or approve of you or care about you. All these different ways, man, we could go on and on. Ways in which the fear of man crops up. I see it in my life. Do you see it in yours? Even this past week at the gym... Going swimming, as I like to go swimming, finding myself, taking my strokes, and noticing that the lifeguard happened to catch a glimpse of me. She wasn't looking at me for a very long time, and I find myself doing this with other lifeguards too, but suddenly I'm like swimming to impress. You know, like I'm Michael Phelps or something, as if they care. This is the craziness of it. Sometimes do you feel like you live your life as an out-of-body experience because you're always watching yourself monitoring what other people see about you? It's the fear of man. Not only in the gym or in the swimming pool, but in the workplace. How much I find myself driving myself to make sure people think I'm capable. As a church planter starting this church, you just don't know how much I'm always fighting off this temptation to justify my existence before you all. To not show any crack of weakness or inability, which of course is the worst thing to do for a community that's trying to live dependent upon the grace of God. Something I need a model to you. And yet sometimes that fear of man thing, driving my overworking. 
I remember saying to Glenn Hoberg, who's the senior pastor downtown, when he hired me about uh, five, six, seven years ago, forget exactly when it was, when it finally came to the point where I was starting to get in touch with how much I was driven by this fear in what I did day to day as a pastor, as an employee, I had to say to him, look, can I just confess, I live my days every day afraid that you might regret hiring me. You feel that? Do you feel that in your heart? It might not even be something big like a job and speaking to a boss or a colleague or a co-worker. Maybe it's just on the basketball court where you're sitting there and you're playing hoops and all you're saying to yourself in your head is, I just don't want these guys to regret that they picked me. Little ways in which it shows up. Little ways, big ways. And you might say, okay, that's interesting and that's kind of cool. But what really is the problem? Is this really that big of a deal? How does it make this list, this cut of excusable sins? Isn't that a strong word? We're talking about being a little nervous, insecure, fearful. Why is it such a big deal? As it says in verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare. I love this metaphor. It's such a helpful, vivid image that the writer of the Proverbs, probably King Solomon, Solomon gives us this vivid metaphor depicting the fear of man as a what? A hunter that's laying down traps for animals. All these different ways, friends, after all, in which the fear of man sets up traps and snares for us. The fear of man is an emotional snare. It makes us emotionally and psychologically just stuck and locked up. Even in the ways that I was listening on all these different forms, you see the way in which we often become paralyzed or shackled by this attention that we give to what other people think of us. We become controlled, even mastered by people's opinions, people's love. People's interactions with us. We are not emotionally free when we're slaves to the fear of man. When your heart is tethered to another human being. Sometimes this enslavement, this emotional, psychological ensnarement, it starts really, really early. It often does. In verse 6, you see this reference to children being in view. Sort of the way in which the proverb is talking about the way that the fear of man and also its corollary, the fear of God, the flip side of it, we'll talk about that in a second, really can be transmitted and passed on from parent to child and from person to person. The way in which a parent might raise his or her child to simply respond to the applause of people constantly. Or the way in which they are counseled constantly to gauge and analyze how people around them are responding. It's really subtle, but it starts early. It's a powerful thing, and it is enslaving. The fear of man is an emotional snare. It's also a moral snare. A moral trap. You know, sometimes this word snare is used in the book of Proverbs to describe the way that Poor judgment can actually corner us into further sin, further moral misjudgments, moral compromise. The way in which the fear of man can actually send me into a trap that I can't get out of. Greater sin 
more layers of iniquity. And to give you one example, one of the most common fruits of the fear of man is lying. It's a snare because not only are you dealing with fear of man in your hearts, but now you're also lying, motivated by the fear of man. What do I mean? Well, if you're so obsessed about what people are thinking about you, whether people like you, whether people have thumbs up you, or think that you're acceptable or competent or whatever, how much energy do you think we will spend to make sure that we can maintain that image and impression in their minds? A lot. The way in which we kind of bend the truth in terms of how many hours you've spent in the office. Or the ways in which you'll make sure that you don't fully tell the truth to a person that's really screwing up their life, but you don't want to confront them about it because you can't bear the thought of them being disappointed in you. The way in which I see it in my life in this way. God has actually put this on my heart, so I'm just telling it to all of you. You know when you're in a conversation with a person? And they say something like, oh, you know, you know, this and such and such ball player, or you know, this author, or this really well-known expert in this field. And you say to yourself, or no, you say to the other person, uh, yeah. And you have no clue who that person is. It's a small, small thing, guys. But oh, it's such a wonderful window into the heart of the little things that we do to cover up because we're afraid that people might think we're not all that we want them to believe we are. It's not only an emotional snare, not only a moral snare, but it's also, most tragically, a spiritual snare. The fear of man, friends, is fatal. Is fatal. You look and take seriously this metaphor here, the fear of man laying a snare. Do you think that the hunter conceals his trap to take you home and make you his pet? No. It's not how the image operates. Set the trap to capture you and to kill you. It's why chapter 14, verse 27 there, that proverb warns of the snares of what? Death. Spiritual death. At the heart of the fear of man, in fact, is something terribly ugly, terribly destructive, and terribly terrible. I've already alluded to it and talked about it. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry. It's treating someone, a person, as a God in your life. You see, it might seem so innocent, or maybe so subtle that you can excuse it and defend yourself against it or pass by it or just live your life living that way. And yet here the Bible reminds us that the fear of man is looking to a person to be everything that the God of the universe, the true God of the universe, actually does promise to be for you. Looking for other human beings to give you glory and significance. Looking to other human beings to fill your heart with a sense of satisfaction. Looking to other human beings to give you love and meaning. Looking to other human beings to protect you from harm. The fear of man is in fact putting your ultimate trust in another human being. You notice in verse 25 that the fear of man is compared to whoever trusts in the Lord in the second of the two covenants. 
The way in which we give ourselves to people in worship. Do you ever realize that the way that you engage in what we kind of pass off as people-pleasing, or the way in which we kind of just, I just I'm just sort of self-conscious sometimes, Or maybe the ways in which we succumb to peer pressure. And I'm not just talking to you if you're in high school or in college, but all of us in some fashion do in the workplace or even in the home. Would we ever think to realize that that is something akin to bowing your knee to a God? Because that's what it is. It's what the Bible tells us here. But we don't normally think of it that way. Okay, it's a big deal. How do we grow in this? How do we turn away from the snares of death, as it says in verse 27? How do we turn away from the fear of man? I think we can point to three movements or three shifts that we have to go through in our thinking and in our hearts. Number one, a movement from fearing man to fearing God. In sharp contrast to the fear of man, here in verses 26, 27, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, we're told, makes you safe, secure, confident, free from the snares of death. And of course, just like the phrase of fear of man, the phrase fear of the Lord in the Bible and in the book of Proverbs specifically, it's a broad term. So yes, it can refer to being terrified of God, the sort of dread and panic that one might feel standing before the judge of the universe. You know, there's a right sense in which we do need to feel accountable before God. It's part of honoring him as God. But mostly when the Bible uses this phrase, the fear of the Lord, it means something closer to reverence. Or the love that a child has for a parent in all their glorious, caring authority. It means something closer to awe, to worship. And it comes out that way in the way that we interact with God as we come to know His mercy and His kindness and His love in addition to His holiness. Because we're coming to understand that this new relationship that you can have with God is based upon His grace and His kindness in Jesus. The fear of the Lord. And you say, wait a minute, how does the fear of the Lord start to expel the fear of man? How does that work? There's a wonderful book on this topic called When People Are Big and God is Small. I was going to bring it up with me. It's in my bag over here. I can show it to you later on if you want. It's the best book that I know on this topic. A good number of pages. If you want to really dig deep into your heart and into the Bible on this counseling issue, counselor Ed Welch has written a great book. And this is what he says about growing in the fear of man. He says this. And part of this quotation actually is in the front of your bulletin in the reflections. All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. 
Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare, the fear of man, is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. The most radical treatment for the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. God must be bigger to you than people are. Not long ago, I was flipping through an old yearbook from the fifth grade. I I still have this in the room that I grew up in. I think it was over a Christmas vacation at my parents' home that I dug this up, and I was reminded about a guy in my class named Chet. Chet Atkins was the biggest dude in the class, and he was huge. Not only tall, but he filled up the room. He was the center on our basketball team, and we loved him. Hugged him, he was a dear friend. We talked to him all the time, played ball with him, and no one could take up space and take that baby hook up to the hoop like Chet could, even in the fifth grade. And we were convinced he was just about the biggest human being on the planet. And then I pick up this yearbook not too long ago, and I look at Chet in the yearbook, and homie must be about five foot two. I mean, you know, or maybe, maybe a little taller than that. I'm not really sure how tall he was, but we were in the fifth grade. And here we are, our little pig sweets, playing point guard or whatever we were playing, looking up at our big center, great big Chet, who was really not all that big, but I didn't know that until I stepped out took a different vantage point in looking at this young man. The vantage point and perspective of time, as well as a different reference point. Knowing how big human beings actually can grow, as well as noticing in the pictures, I know about how tall he wasn't because of the different people in the picture now. So I can see relative to the trees and other things going on uh, in the picture, he's not that tall. It all depends upon your reference point. It all depends upon your perspective. People are like Chet to us. And this is what drives our fear of man. Because all we see in front of us are people that loom very large and seem very powerful, sometimes very threatening, and surely they deserve to control our lives. Surely they have proper authority to mold my self-image. Surely I ought to give them the authority to tell me that I am lovable and dignified and full of glory. All these sorts of ways. No, Dr. Welch reminds us that when God is big, a different perspective and a different reference point, Chet is very small. How's your Chet? Or more importantly, how big is your God? You see, because you can do all you want and try to slay the giants of the people that you are fearing or holding in awe and worshiping your heart. And you can just try to dismantle those giants and tell yourself again and again what that person said was not that damaging. You are beautiful no matter what they say. Words can't tear me down. Whoa. whoa. <laughs> you can tell yourself all you want. But it won't change your heart. Unless it comes from a bigger source, a more defining source, the God of the universe, who has the authority to tell you that you are beautiful because you're made in my image. You are glorious because I put my template upon you and your soul. 
You are loved because I killed my son in your place that I might have you as my son and my daughter. You are accepted because I've given my son to you that his life might count as your righteousness. So I accept you unchangeably and perfectly, not because of the good that you did, but because of the good that he did. I accept you. And it's true. Because he's God. And the bigger he is to you, the deeper it'll actually reshape your heart to believe this and to live like it's true. How big is your God? And if God is big, then guess what also happens? You start to see how big his love for you really is. A holy God who's holy in his justice, but holy in his mercy, who forgives you a man-fearing sinner. You start to see how big his acceptance of you is. This brings us to the second point, this movement. Not only from the fear of man to the fear of God, but from security in people to security in Jesus. From security in people to security in Jesus. You see, because the whole thing of the fear of man really is because we deeply long for something that you might call a fortress and a refuge. Something that gives you firm ground to stand upon. Something that tells you that you're okay. Something that meets your needs and fills your hearts. This is why we turn to other people and make them our gods and let them control us and our behaviors and our thoughts and our self-image. And here we have, in verse 26, a different story. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord has a refuge, a fortress. This God who protects us, who makes us safe, who literally, this word in verse 25, set on high, like beyond the reach of man, that who you are is untouchable by the little chets in your life. I'm dogging on chet. No, I don't mean dog on chet. I love chet. Set on high, safe, where no man can touch you, where no person can change God's verdict upon your life. Here we hear also this language of the fear of the Lord being a fountain of life, a life-giving source to us. And friends, all of this has its final fulfillment in the protection, the safety, the refuge, and the life-giving power that we have in Jesus. Jesus who protects us from the coming wrath of God. Jesus who has taken for us the judgment of God in our place that we might be forgiven and loved. Jesus that gives us the final verdict from the judge of the universe, which is not a verdict of condemnation, but a verdict of innocence and more than innocence, a verdict of love. Do you know that you're loved? Because until you do, by an authoritative source of love, namely God himself, you will always be creeping back to other sources of love. You will always be going back to other fountains of life. You will always be turning to people to be for you what only Jesus alone can be and is for you. So this is the promise, to be able to be so secure in the love of God and Jesus that you don't need to look to other people to give you that kind of security. 
talked about Chet, and now I turn to Ruffy. Golden retriever of a friend, one of the most beautiful dogs I'd ever known. Friendly, furry, beautiful. Was never a big fan of golden retrievers until I met Ruffy. Kind of this reddish, orangish coat, and not just the lighter coat. A real friendly dog, a caring dog, was very gentle with their two-year-old boy, an amazingly well-trained, obedient dog. The thing that always broke my heart, though, Ruffy never came to me when I called to him. Love, I've got a real soft heart for dogs. I love dogs. Grew up with dogs. Maybe you're like that, too. But it always hurt just a little bit. Because I wanted to be with Ruffy and spend time with Ruffy. All he ever wanted to do was hang out with his owners. All he ever wanted to do was to be with them. And even when I called to him, he would just look up and kind of look away. And that's all he would give to me. I always, from even that day, thought that it was an amazing portrait of you. Like, you've got to be kidding me. A portrait of what it's like for a heart and a life, even a dog's, to be so filled with the love of a master that Ruffy didn't need anybody in his life because he knew he was loved. There is a freedom that comes to us, a freedom from people. And I don't mean that in a loveless, self-centered sort of way. But what I mean is the way in which we use people and the way in which we bow before people, a freedom from that, that you find when you know you are loved and accepted by the one whose opinion and verdict matters most. Be like Ruffy. And let your life be defined and filled by the love and the verdict of the ones, one whose opinion about you matters most. The God of the universe. Whose loud shouts of delight over your life can muffle out all the other, other verdicts that you and I are so terrified of or are trying to earn constantly from other people. The verdicts of ugly or incompetent or failure or trying to win accepted, proven, worthy, glorious, lovable. Here's your God who gives you all of that and more. Who looks at you and sees His Son Jesus in your place and calls you every one of those things. Righteous, perfect, beloved, my child, my son, my daughter. Thirdly and lastly, and very briefly, not only moving from the fear of man to the fear of God and from security in people to security in Jesus, the love of Jesus, but lastly, moving from people pleasing to people loving. I've said it already. You see how fearing man is essentially a form of using people. I do things for you and I do things with you, not for your sake, but for my sake, because of what I can get out of you in making myself feel more loved and accepted and approved. This is the nature of this sort of idolatry of human beings. One of the greatest works of God, when the grace of God takes a hold of our life, 
is that we move from needing people to actually serving people. And friends, when God comes in and starts to heal you and free you from the fear of man, maybe for some of you, you're just going to start in a brand fresh new way, actually start to love people for their own sake. Because if you're a people pleaser, it's almost impossible for you to be a people lover. Because you're doing things just to make them like you, or maybe you're an enabler. You don't ever want them to be disappointed or angry with you. Or maybe you, you never confront a person, even when it's for their good, and even when they're making a wreck of their lives, because you just can't stand the thought of them being angry. Never able to risk the relationship. Never able to actually just serve for their sake without having that out-of-body set of eyes on yourself, always asking yourself, how am I doing and how am I looking? When you start to cultivate the fear of God, when God is big, and when His love and His opinion of you becomes defining to your life, maybe, just maybe, we start to love people. And as we start to love people, this is what happens. We start to get in close enough to be recognizing and to realize again and again that we're loving people, yes, as glorious people, but certainly as flawed and limited human beings. We used to treat them like gods and put them on a pedestal and bow our knee and treat them with awe, but now we start to see they never deserve that place. They never should have had that power in our life because they're broken just like you and me. The people that we most bow our knee to, we're often glossing over their failures and flaws. We're kind of giving them a free pass. But when you get in there with the grace of God, you start to see, I need to not fear them, I need to love them. Why? Because they have deep needs too. I need to stop worshiping them for their sake so that I can care for them. Be a brother, be a sister, be a friend, be a servant in their life. Stop treating people as gods in your life, friends. I'm there with you. See them as broken, needy sinners that they really are. And paradoxically, we'll start to find that the path of service is the road to freedom. Freedom from the fear of man. This thing that locks us up, that can snare us, enslave us. And yet there's hope. There's hope, not only of forgiveness, but a new way of living. A new way of orienting ourselves towards a very big God who then puts people in their proper place that we might love them and serve them. A big God who loves you. Who receives you. Not just for face value, but through His Son Jesus. Will you embrace Him today? Maybe this is a step you need to take. Because you see your life is a mess because you're driven and enslaved to this sickness of heart. There's freedom for you, friends. There's freedom. And that freedom's name is Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you for just giving us a, a good look into our hearts. We need it. We need it, God. We need you. Thank you for being gentle. Thank you for being detailed, Lord. Giving us your word to inspect our own hearts. We do thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus. The freedom that we find in the fear of God. Pray that you would help us to know how big you really are, and how big your love really is, and how big your gospel is, that we would bow our knees with awe and reverence and joy. Change us in that worship process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. It's called Be Magnified. We've sung